A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to discover the best in writing for business leaders. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT Work and Careers Editor. For this series, we asked our leading commentators and columnists to choose books to bring solace in turbulent times. In freewheeling fashion, true to the spirit of this podcast, Michael Skopinka, contributing editor, has chosen not a book, but a play, Henry IV Part Two, Shakespeare's examination of the nature of kingship. And he joins me now. Not Shakespeare, but Michael. Welcome. Hello. It's the traditional question. Before we get to Shakespeare, Michael, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I've just come back from holiday and uh, my holiday reading uh, was a book called The Dark Circle by the British author Linda Grant. It's, I suppose, slightly strangely for holiday reading. It's a book about tuberculosis. (laughs) It's a very engaging book. It's set in 1950 for the most part in a TB sanatorium in Kent. And it's about the characters that populate the sanatorium, about the waiting for the cure. They're waiting for streptomycin, this miracle drug which is going to cure their tuberculosis. She uses, I mean, the device of a a closed institution is a very common novelistic device, whether it's an army platoon in a book like Norman Mailer's uh, The Naked and the Dead or or Hogwarts in Harry Potter. (laughs) A closed institution obviously allows you to establish all sorts of relationships between different people. And this sanatorium is exactly like this. This is a private sanatorium for TB sufferers, but it's being taken over by this newly created institution, the National Health Service. And because of that, you get a lot of working-class characters coming into the sanatorium for the first time. Two of the central characters are these twins, a boy and a girl, um, teenage uh, Jewish twins from London's East End, sort of quite rough and ready, and they start to shake the whole place up. So it's a very engaging story, very interesting. Uh, but as we're discussing this in a, in, in a business books podcast, uh, it's also about several interesting themes. It's about, as I said, the creation of the National Health Service. It's about the role of Big Pharma, because everybody knows that this great drug is coming, but there isn't enough money yet for it. And so this is clearly a, an issue which we still have today. The pharmaceutical industry is going to be taking the National Health Service to court about their refusal to pay more for their drugs. So that's an interesting part. It's also very interesting on on the development of Britain in the 1950s, of post-war Britain, we see the founding of the BBC, indeed of commercial television. One of the characters goes on to play a great role in commercial television. It's the post-war development of new housing. Uh, I like this bit particularly because uh, Linda Grant refers to various new projects being developed in the bits of North London that I've lived in for over 30 years. So I had a lot of fun trying to identify the actual street she was talking about. In one case, I, I thought I could 
see the actual building she was she was writing about. So a very interesting book, very engaging one. One of those novels that when you're away from it, you kind of long to get back to it. Very interesting story. And it prompted me as well to look at our uh, special report, Combating Tuberculosis, which we published a couple of years ago, Financial Times special report, which, of course, showed that tuberculosis is still with us. We now have drug-resistant forms of TB that are having to be confronted, that the pharmaceutical industry and the medical profession are having to deal with. We've had TB making a reappearance in the developed world. So a very, very interesting book. And it, it's difficult to imagine now, but these sanatoriums were a regular fact of life. They were very common in and around London at that point. Many people sort of entered them and you'd go into them for about a year. You'd be quarantined. You would be. Now, what's interesting is uh, it's not altogether clear from this book how, how infectious tuberculosis was. And you have, uh, for example, people going into the, the village and drinking in the sort of local tea room, which I thought would have created more than a fuss than it does in this <laughs> book. Uh, you also have a couple of the staff being intimate with the patients, which I thought would have been quite a risky thing to do. But in fact, tuberculosis, from what I've read subsequently, is is not that infectious, quite difficult to contract tuberculosis. It's spread by sneezing, coughing, and the usual things, but you have to be in quite close contact with people. And, and a lot of people get tuberculosis and don't know about it. They have this uh, latent tuberculosis, which they never find out about. But you're, you're absolutely right. There was no cure at that time apart from bed rest and, and fresh air. The patients are put out on the balcony sort of having to sleep in the snow because this was, <laughs> this was thought to be the way in which um, they could be cured. There are also some very unpleasant surgical procedures that people were involved in, involving the collapsing of one of their lungs. So it does make you reading this book, as I say, although tuberculosis has returned in some forms, it makes you enormously grateful for modern medicine. And why is it called the dark circle? Well, the dark circle, they were in the circle. These patients become very close to each other. There's various reasons why it's called the dark circle, but one of them is they form a dark circle. It's a very dark period of their lives. And as I say, these are people who would never normally have come into contact with each other. You have these East End twins. You have a very mysterious German exile. Nobody really knows why she's there. You have an aristocrat. I won't give the story away, but is a very interesting part of this. You have sort of middle-class blue-stocking Oxbridge types, and they're all brought together. They become great friends, and we subsequently find out how their friendships develop after the sanatorium. An intriguing and unconventional choice. And the last time you were on the podcast, you recommended that business leaders read Joseph Heller's Catch-22, a classic work of fiction. You obviously read a lot of fiction. This time you've suggested they read one of Shakespeare's histories, not a book, but a play. Why is this a text for turbulent times? Well, uh, the book I've chosen, the play I've chosen, King Henry the Fourth, Part Two, is part of a, a four-part. It's, it's Shakespeare's history plays, which begin with Richard the Second, then uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and Henry the Fifth. And uh, this is about a, a turbulent upheaval in British history: the uh, usurpation of Richard the Second by Henry the Fourth, uh, the battles and rebellions against him, and finally the ascent to the throne of, of Henry the Fourth's son, Henry the fifth who you know who famously leads troops into the battle of Agincourt why have I chosen Henry the fourth part two I've chosen Henry the fourth part two because I think uh, it says something very very important and not sufficiently discussed about becoming a leader 
obviously becoming a king is an important part of, of leadership, but much less elevated leaders than that, people becoming heads of department, heads of companies. I wanted to talk about the way in which your life changes and how you have to be prepared for that change of life and how you have to be prepared for the reordering of all your personal relationships and your friendships. So let me tell you why I chose Henry the Fourth Part Two to illustrate this. The central relationship in Henry the Fourth, Part One and Part Two is the relationship between young Prince Harry, Hal, and Sir John Falstaff. Falstaff is a um overweight, alcoholic, corrupt, thieving, lying, cowardly character who is at the same time one of the best loved figures in English literature. You know, the the term larger than life, very cliched now, could have been invented for Falstaff. There's something attractive about him, absolutely hilarious when you watch these plays. The whole audience comes to life when, he, when he Falstaff comes Elizabeth on. He was Queen Elizabeth I's favourite character, wasn't he? I mean, I think many people's favourite characters as well. I've seen Falstaff performed by Roger Allen, by Anthony Scher, uh, great actors doing it in very different ways. But it's absolutely, he's absolutely compelling. And young Prince Harry is basically spends all his time being dissolute with Falstaff. Um, he, he makes it pretty clear that he thinks Falstaff is often a joke and he, he, he plays a lot of tricks at his expense. But basically, Falstaff leads Harry into the sort of life or Harry joins him in the sort of life, which makes many people, including King Henry IV, think that Harry, who's the Prince of Wales and is the, the heir to the throne, is simply unfit to take over. Now, Harry tells us early on that uh, people will be very surprised by how good a king he's going to be. But you have this constant relationship between Falstaff and Harry, uh, which continues until um, Henry IV dies and Hal becomes Henry V and becomes the king. And Falstaff, when he hears the news that uh, the old king has died and that his great mate, Prince Harry, has become the king, well, he thinks his ship has come in. He's going to be very important at court. He's going to be able to dispense all sorts of jobs. And he then approaches the new king, Henry V, and goes up to him and sort of says to him, you know, approaches him and and says to Harry, um, God save thee, my sweet boy. To which the new king, Henry V, says, I know thee not, old man, fall to thy prayers. And he completely rebuffs Falstaff. He says to him, go away. Um, he actually has him arrested. And he says to Falstaff, and I think this is such an important line, and it's the line that I think really exemplifies why I've chosen this play as a description for what happens when you become a leader. Henry V says to Falstaff, presume not that I am the thing I was. Now, when I've watched this, it, it really is a scene which it makes the hairs rise on your on your arm when you see this. I just I looked up because I remembered reading it, um, something that Simon Sharma, the historian and regular Financial Times contributor, what he said about this scene, he wrote this in the Financial Times. He said, the end of Henry IV Part Two, in which Hal becomes Henry V and repudiates his old companion in crime, is more shattering than any denouement of Shakespeare's tragedies. At the end of Hamlet, Lear, or Antony and Cleopatra, the stage is littered with bodies. At the end of Henry the Fourth, Part Two, all we have is the broken heart of the fat old knight, and it is much worse. We'll come back to the changing nature of leadership in a moment, but 
I hadn't read this play since I was at university and I really enjoyed returning to it. I'd, I'd actually forgotten the plot. It's a well-crafted telling of the rise of the House of Lancaster across the whole series of four. It's set in 1402 and 1403. For those of us like me who need a refresh, can, can you give us an overview of the plot? It's part of, I suppose, well, the first three really hang together. You have Henry IV usurping the throne from Richard II, something for which he feels very guilty. You then have him in rebellion against his own kingdom and fighting the Sorf. Uh, and you have this preparation of young Prince Harry to assume the throne, which, you know, Henry IV just thinks is not going to be possible. He just doesn't see how his son's going to do it. In Henry IV, part two, he's got this very well-known line, Henry IV, where he says, uh, an easy lies the head that wears a crown. He remarks on the fact that it's so much easier for ordinary people to sleep than it is for a king to sleep. He's obviously plagued by conscience. He's plagued by responsibility. He's plagued by rebellion. And when he's dying, there's also a very affecting scene where he's got the, the crown on a pillow next to his bed. And Harry, who's been sort of out, he's not home as usual, turns up while his father, King Henry IV, seems to be dying. And he sits by his bedside. The old king is, is dying. And when he thinks he's died, young Prince Harry takes the crown, puts it on his head and walks out. And the king hasn't died yet, Henry IV. He wakes up and he discovers what Harry has done. And this, he, he feels as well, this just shows that the young prince is just not ready to assume the, the big role that uh, he's going to take. And he says to him, the king says to Harry, thou seekest the greatness that will overwhelm thee. You know, and Harry has got to take on this responsibility when he becomes king. He says as well, this new and gorgeous garment majesty, since not so easy on me as you think. These are all the tremendous pressures which come with taking over. And just to come back to our mundane, everyday management life, I think there's that moment when somebody is appointed to the big job that they've always hankered after, the big job that they've always aspired to, and they get it, and there's that tremendous exhilaration, this tremendous thrill, I've got the new job. And then what immediately sets in a day or two later, maybe almost straight afterwards, is what have I done and what do I do now? And then, as I say, what really, really intrigues me, and I don't think we've got, you know, Shakespeare and management is a whole industry. There are people who write about these things. There are people who take all sorts of Shakespearean plays and apply them to management. But I think in all the management literature and all the leadership literature, not nearly enough has written about how becoming a leader, as I say, becoming the head of your department even, how it reorders your relationships. Because you can no longer really have the same relationships with your friends that you used to have. You don't have to cast them aside the way Harry did Falstaff. But you can't really be friends with people in the same way. Certainly if you're managing them, you're no longer their friends in the same way. You've got to appraise them. You've got to judge them on their performance. You've got to decide on their merit increases, their pay increases. In the worst case scenario, you might have to decide they're no longer fit for the job. So I think that changes relationships. And it takes a while sometimes for both sides to understand this and to realize this. But I think even in the wider organization, even if you're not managing your friends directly, you have a new relationship with them. Just like Harry can no longer sort of be whoring and boozing in the sort of uh, bars and pubs of East Cheap, you can no longer be the sort of person who sits in the staff canteen making jokes, slagging off the management. You are now part of that leadership team. And there's another side to it. I think very few people realize until they take on a leadership position how much people confide in you. 
you have a team all sorts of things happen to them in their lives they have problems with their children they have problems with their parents they have problems in their relationships they sometimes come and tell you or they often come and tell you I've got this problem can I talk to you privately and it turns out that there's something which is affecting their work and you've got to hold all those confidences now you can no longer be the person who's constantly gossiping I uh, do quite a bit of management education I was talking to a group of financial services people in Italy these were new managers and I said to them before you became a manager did you realize that people had so many things happening in their lives and they all smiled in recognition of this new position they're in so I think that's what's so important about this it's not really spoken about enough and if I were to recommend Henry the fourth part two to people in business it would be to discuss this particular change this particular thing that happens because it's not only that you have new responsibilities you also have an entirely new world around you. You walk through a door and nothing is the same after that. Some of that tension is reflected in the play's style, isn't it? Because the tavern scenes in particular are the most memorable scenes in the play. So these are, these are the bawdy scenes in East Cheap Taverns that you talk about. I think it's the Boar's Head, which Prince Hal goes drinking in. This is the, the future King of England, and he's in a very sleazy pub in a very sort of run-down part of London with Falstaff. And they associate with thieves and criminals and prostitutes. And these these scenes are, are hilarious and, and very engaging. But the style veers between history and comedy, doesn't it? Between these lofty scenes of kingship and leadership and these bawdy scenes in taverns. And that reflects some of that, that tension that Prince Hal feels. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the other great comic characters in the, in the Henry plays is, is Mistress Quickly, prostitute and a dull tear sheet who we also have here. And yes, I mean, those are incredibly bawdy. As you say, these are, these are, I mean, absolutely filled with double entendres, uh, Shakespeare's language in all of these. And uh, yes, and there are all sorts of, I mean, there, there are many comic situations between Hal and Falstaff. In this particular one, Hal appears, you know, he's going to be a drawer. He's going to be a waiter in this tavern, uh, pretending that he's not someone. And Falstaff recognizes him immediately. But Hal has already overheard Falstaff saying all sorts of things about him. Uh, in Henry the Fourth, Part One, there's a very funny scene in which um, Hal pretends and, and a friend pretend to rob Falstaff. And just so that they could hear him boast about it afterwards, about how he beat up these thieves. I mean, there is this constant comic. And as you say, the comedy in these in these taverns, the comedy between the prostitutes with Falstaff, with Hal, this is Prince Harry sort of leading this absolute dissolute life before taking on his responsibilities. They are very, very funny. And these history plays, as you say, they veer between these great battles, these great questions of kingship and ownership and sovereignty. And this tremendous comedy, all of this prompted by this tremendous, this great character of Falstaff. And going back to your, your central point about, about leadership and about being ready for leadership, at what point in the play does Prince Hal make the change? At what point does he, as you, as you talked about, step through that door and realise that he can't continue with this old debauched life, that he needs to develop a, a new personality to tackle the quest of being the leader of England and England in turbulence and decay? There's a rebellion, isn't there? There is. At the same time, we know from Harry, 
Uh, we know throughout the uh, part one and part two, he knows he's going to have to change. He knows people are going to be surprised by how responsible he becomes. As I say, his father didn't think he was going to be able to make the change. The real change you see is when he realizes that his father, Henry IV, is dying. And he realizes this is it now. And that old life of mine is going to have to go. That is why that dismissal of Falstaff is so cruel and so shocking. And we really, really feel for that. We really, really feel for the man. This is the extraordinary thing. I mean, Falstaff does the most terrible things, takes bribes from soldiers not to go to war so that he can send other unsuitable, unfit people to war. He does all sorts of things. We have this tremendous sympathy for him because he's so funny. He's so human. He's absolutely, I suppose, without pretension in a way. But Harry realizes that is not the life that a leader can live. And I think he's aware of it all along. But when he becomes king, he assumes that responsibility very, very quickly. He knows what it means. And he deals with the rebellion against his father as well. Yes. And uh, I mean, he deals with, first of all, there's the, the chief justice who has been at odds with him, who he thinks is chief justice thinks he's done for now. He quickly and he quickly takes him to his side. And uh, he realizes as well, and I suppose this is another point of becoming a leader, he's going to need people around him who know how the system works. And he's going to have to get rid of the people who don't know how the system works. By, by, by saying to Falstaff, you're no longer part of this. He's saying, I'm not going to basically bring in a sleazy, corrupt style of leadership into this. I understand that there's a continuity to the leadership, which is absolutely necessary. People have to realize that I'm taking on something which already exists. I'm taking on an institution which already exists, but which, as you say, is not that secure, beset and surrounded by rebellion as it's been. So dealing with rebellion is, I mean, obviously in this play, it's on a grand scale, but all leaders have to deal with rebellion at some point. What are the lessons that Shakespeare brings to this? Well, I think there are a couple of things. Um, first of all, get to know who your, who the key players are. Who are the people who you're going to have to rely on? Who are the people with the levers on power? We see this all the time. We see this, uh, for example, Theresa May found there was a rebellion against her. She called a general election, which she expected to win overwhelmingly, and she ended up with a hung parliament. She ended up in a very much weakened position. She is clearly aware, as she thought she was going to be able to clear out her cabinet, she thought she was going to be able to fire her Chancellor of the Exchequer, Phil Hammond. She's realized that she actually needs people in place. I think when you become a leader, you have to think, right, who do I need to help me here? Who knows how everything works? Who knows what the levers of power are? You have to have the kind of team who can support you. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is I think you need to have a better assessment and a better understanding of who your people are at all levels. Uh, in Henry V, um, before the battle, there's this very, very resonant scene when um, Henry V goes disguised as an ordinary soldier around the camp talking to all the soldiers. I think... Those two things, having people around you who can tell you how things work, but also maintaining contact with the people that really matter. And I think well, this is the other thing Shakespeare tells us. It's quite difficult to maintain that contact with, with ordinary people, with ordinary workers, with ordinary employees, or in this case with ordinary soldiers, because they react differently to the fact that you're a leader. They kind of seize up. They're not that eager to talk to you. And I think it takes quite a lot of time to win their confidence. You can't walk around in disguise the way Henry V did. It was a very difficult thing to do. But I think, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking of a particular chief executive that I used to write about. Every Friday, he used to go into to customer relations. He used to sit with the customer relations department. He used to say to him, show me some of the complaints that have come in this week. 
and they'd show, they'd show him some of the emails. And he would sit there and he'd make a few phone calls, make a few phone calls to the dissatisfied customers and say to them, this is the CEO here. And I'm sorry this has happened to you. Now, obviously, the customers were both um, amazed and delighted. But it also helped him to win the confidence of his customer relations people to show he's really trying to engage with these things. So I think that's another important part of it. How do you manage to keep that contact with the frontline workers, with the people who really do know what's happening in the organization? Because nobody knows more about the organization and what's happening in it than those people who deal directly with the customers. So if only Theresa May had read... (laughs) Henry the Fourth, Part Two. Um, she might be in a very different position. Are we lacking a leader like Prince Hal? Is there anyone on the horizon? Well, I actually wrote a column a couple of weeks ago, which got uh, quite a big response, in which I said I thought we were at a time of a real lack of leadership. Yeah. You know, when we think about the quality of leadership that we have now, we have some leaders, Angela Merkel, uh, you know, who's a controversial figure, and and history has yet to judge her. We're waiting to see whether Emmanuel Macron in France amounts to very much. It's very early days for him. But uh, what I said in this column is if you compare the leaders we've got now with the leaders of just a generation ago, people like Helmut Schmidt, Willy Brandt, I said I found it extraordinary that the country of Winston Churchill has now got Theresa May leading the government and Jeremy Corbyn leading the opposition. And, you know, that's without even talking about the grotesque figure that we've got in the White House at the moment. Um, an absolutely astonishing position. I do think we, we have a lack of, certainly of political leadership at the moment. There are some slightly more impressive business leaders. I'm thinking of people like Michael Bloomberg or Paul Polman. But um, what was interesting is in the comments under my column when I wrote about the lack of leadership, Uh, Quite a few readers said to me, you've left out the most important thing, and that is that there is now so much intrusion into people's private lives that nobody wants to become leader anymore. Nobody wants to go into politics anymore. Winston Churchill, with his whiskey drinking and everything else, how long would he have survived in today's environment? And uh, I'm just reminded of the fact that to talk about a, a current Prince Harry, Prince Harry of England now, said in an interview a couple of weeks ago that nobody wants to be, who would want to be king? You know, he said Prince William takes it on out of a sense of duty, a sense of duty to his grandmother, the current queen. But, you know, these are very, very difficult positions because there's so much intrusion. And the modern Prince Harry uh, has also had, you know, he hasn't had anything like the kind of wild life that uh, the uh, Prince Harry of King Henry IV has had. But, you know, he's done a few things that he probably wishes he hadn't done. Uh, And the intrusion has just been enormous. So I do think this is a problem now. And as the readers have pointed out, you have to be somebody who can really take on this level of personal intrusion if you want to go into any sort of leadership today. So Prince Hal, the young (laughs) Prince Hal in the boar's head might not have survived in the age of uh, social media. So the business lessons from Henry IV Part Two: We have lose your unsuitable friends. We have get to know who the key players are. We have surround yourself with the people who know how the system works and stay close to the ground. It seems to me that there are four lessons there. Anything else? Yes, I would add a fifth. Um, Because you have to change the nature of your relationships and your friendships within the organisation, I think it's very important that you have friendship and support outside. This is something which kings find very difficult because obviously they rule the whole realm and that's why in Shakespeare we often have the character of the fool to tell the king the truth because nobody else is going to. I do think it's quite important that you have a mentor or a guide outside the organization to help you with these things. And I think it's also vital because your friendships change within the organization that you maintain your friendships outside and that you maintain your relationship with your family. 
I think all of these things, you can become overwhelmed. You can start working so hard that you lose those friendships outside. You don't invest time in them. And I think far too many leaders don't invest enough time in their families. And once they've finished with Henry IV Part Two. Which other Shakespeare plays should business leaders read? Well, I think everybody's got their own favourites with that, haven't they? I mean, I've chosen this one just because I first saw Roger Allen. This was in 2010. I'd read the play. I, I saw him portray this casting of Falstaff. As I said, this one was the one for me. You know, as I said, Shakespeare and management's a whole big industry, so everybody else has got their their own character they look into. Some of these are a bit contrived. You know, this is the one which worked for me because I just felt it was, as I say, it was so startling. And in many ways, it was so true to what happens. Michael Skopinka, thank you very much. That's it from us. Please do stay in touch using the Twitter hashtag FTBizBooks or by emailing us at businessbooks at FT.com. My thanks to Michael Skopinka, to our producer, Yanina Conboy, and thank you for listening.